It's that fortunate kind of easy question from a recent paper. Vast majority got twos. Forty percent got three. So most people pass, but yeah, often with the often with the simpler questions, they expect more. I guess they expect they expect perfection. Yeah, that's that, and that's the problem. Hey everyone, it's time for another episode of Anesthesia Coffee Break. I'm Lahiru. And I'm Stan. And today we are going to talk about compliance. All right. So first, Lahiru, what performance tip do you have for us today? Well, I thought I'd talk about how it's really important to learn a topic in many different ways. And this is something that I accidentally came across, but it has worked immensely well for me. So I think the way the reason it works is you just make different neuronal connections about the same thing. And that just makes the memory much more stable. So the old school way of learning is sitting at a desk at the same time, the same place and reading and taking notes in a very similar way. But I found each topic far easier to remember if I varied everything. And I think this was something we mentioned previously that you're almost forced to do this because of our bad hours and the fact that you're trying to learn so much information. But for example, the content, you know, I'd start with a small book or even Wikipedia, then go to a bigger text, a detailed text, make notes from that back to point form. So I'm going from simple to complex to simple. That's many different styles of this, you know, of reading the same information. Or then I'd read a topic, I'd write about it, I'd teach it, I'd reorganize it, I'd talk about it. And maybe these days, maybe make a recording of it. I know one of my mates, he's making recordings of some of his notes and then listening to it on the way to work. So multiple inputs, multiple sensory inputs. Uh, and one of my favorite things was just not to just be at my desk. I'd be at my desk, at the kitchen table, sitting in the corner, sitting on the couch, going to a cafe, walking. And that's a really good point because the way that you think about these things in different ways and it leads to the same conclusion is really how the exam is actually done mm-hmm. there are many ways to ask a question mm-hmm. and it all leads to the same answer mm-hmm. and you want to be able to be as you said be flexible in your talk in your thought be adaptable in your thoughts and i think having that ability to learn in different environments actually teaches you all that and the classic classic example mm-hmm. is hey you i got asked about the cardiac cycle but i got asked about it as a wiggers diagram yes and <laughs> You have to learn things in different ways. And they're just different, you know, and that's just a very simple, uh, simple uh, example. Yes. But it's just two, 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 exactly the two same questions yes. asked in a different format. And you need to be, you need to be flexible in the way you think in, to, in order to realize that, yes, mm. it can be asked in, in both ways. Yes. And I think having that flexible thought and the way that you learn and the way that you adapt into different environments actually makes you a better anesthetist. I was, just about, I was just thinking about how the first, the second part exam, the fact that it's so clinical and no clinical scenario is ever the same means that you've got to be able to think of these hypotheticals. Like yes. imagine the hypothetical of whatever your scenario is and they make it a bit worse. When you explore that hypothetical, you're already training your mind to think about a worst case scenario that you may have in the future yes. and you've already thought about it. So yeah, I find that th- changing things up makes it interesting. It creates these different connections, hopefully in your brain, and increases that understanding. But this doesn't mean you don't have to create good habits. So, you know, regular practice is essential. It's like what you mentioned last week about you still need to get things done uh, and you need a good habit of study, of you know, study and discipline. But it doesn't mean that you have to be that meme of some lonely person sitting at a desk for hours doing the same thing in the same way if no more information is going in because you just can't stare at that book in the same way. You know, why not take a break? and do something else, go to a cafe, go for a walk in the park. Great. Mm-hmm. So now we're going to do question number three mm-hmm. from the 2020 second sitting. And the question is discuss 
the respiratory system compliance and outline factors that affect it. So La, how would you approach this? Yeah, so this is this seems like a very technical question. There's not so much clinical relevance to this, but I thought we'd always, as you mentioned before, adding clinical relevance to this stuff is just really makes it practical, makes it actually interesting. So my approach is actually the same. I'd start as usual with a definition, how to measure it, and then outline my framework for this. So outlining that there's dynamic and static compliance, mm. and then the factors that affect it. Great. So what is your definition? Yep. So compliance is the distensibility of something. And this is interesting, just what we're talking about before. When we think about compliance, we've got a, a pressure volume graph. But when we think about a left ventricular pressure volume curve, it's a volume pressure graph with the axes swapped. Mm. So the fact that I'm cross-linking this with something that I'm going to see in the cardiology, physiology um, you know, questions, I'm now thinking of you know, the fact that compliance is dissensibility, but when I inverse that, it's elastance. And elastance, elastance is like the stiffness of something. So I'm just trying to get a bit of a you know, change in the way I'm thinking about yes. that. Not good. Um, to c- continue, it's volume change per unit pressure. So think of pressure on the x-axis and volume on the y-axis. And I then draw that specific hysteresis graph and I'll put a link in the show notes to that. I'd also probably show the maths that one over compliance total is one over or equals one over compliance of the chest wall plus one over compliance of the lung tissue itself. And the typical value, normal is around 200 mils per centimeter of water when upright, but decreases to 150 when supine. And, and that's just the lung compliance? Yeah, that's just the lung compliance, sorry. So the total compliance is actually less than that. Yeah. And that's a really good point because when I first saw this mm. and just the idea that you always try to bring what you learn into theater, mm. What I found was that when I actually saw my machine mm-hmm. and I saw that the volumes change only generated less than what I estimated a normal, like it was a normal normal patient having a spot vent GA. Mm. And the results of the lung compliance were a lot less than mm. what I predicted. Yes. In other words, from this to generate 500 mils of tidal volume. Yeah. You would only need. You will only need if you were going by 150 um, mils per centimeter of water. You only need about three to four, which is insane because you need about 10 to 15 centimeters Correct. of pressure to get 500 mils. Yes. Yeah. So why is that? And the reason for that is that I realized that what you were measuring on the anesthetic machine was not lung compliance, but total respiratory lung compliance. Yeah. Total chest chest wall plus lung compliance. Correct. So if you actually did the maths and you added, and chest wall compliance, it's fairly similar to, it's around 150 as well. Mm-hmm. And often I just tell candidates just to keep things simple at 150 and 150. So if you go one over 150 plus one over 150, mm-hmm. you would get one, two over 150. And if you do the maths on that, you should get your lung compliance to be around mm-hmm. 80 centimeters of water. Mm-hmm. And that's about right. For so 80 mils per centimeter of water. And if I'm thinking, let's say a really young, healthy patient with a very normal lung and chest wall, say 10 centimeters water gives 500 mils. Yep. That's a compliance of like 50 mils per centimeter. Yes, correct. Of pressure, yep. centimeter water of pressure. Correct. All right. So how would you measure lung compliance? Yeah. So really compliance is the slope of the lung's pressure volume curve. Now, the way this is done is actually you know, pretty technical. You inspire and expire in a series of steps of a given volume, and then measure the intrapleural pressure with a transesophageal manometer. So the patient has to be essentially upright, 
and the menominate is placed in the lower third of the esophagus. It's a very technical, and it's not something that a lot of us have seen. Now, inter- interestingly, it's static compliance is then measured when you hold a volume, but with the glottis open. So it's not like you're trying to hold your breath with your glottis closed in any specific way. You just have a very measured amount of volume and you just hold it. And that allows your fast and slow alveoli to equilibrate and the pressure will you know, stabilize. Now, dynamic compliance is measured during normal rhythmical breathing, but without pausing the inhalation. So it doesn't allow the fast and slow alveoli to equilibrate. The volume change is divided by the peak change in the transmural pressure as opposed to the plateau change. So how is this relevant for our clinical practice? Like when we think about our ventilation strategies, Mm. how can we see the difference between dynamic and static compliance on our anesthetic machines? Yeah, it's interesting. So if if you ever look at your, in the standard anesthetic machine with volume control ventilation, it doesn't have much of an inspiratory pause. So if you ever go into the settings, you can see a kind of category called T-I-N-S-P, T-INSP, or T-INSP pause. And you can increase the amount of pause that occurs once you've given a head of pressure or some volume to the lungs. And you'll see this kind of peak and then it has a little plateau. And that means that your lung, fast and slow alveoli have equilibrated. So the pressure will ultimately decrease. That's your, you know, that's your pressure for measuring static compliance. But that peak just before it occurs, that's what you'd measure as a pressure for dynamic compliance. And a lot of ICU ventilators already have this kind of plateau set there but the anesthetic ventilators don't really have it and it probably doesn't really matter in any normal case Mm. and which one has high compliance static or dynamic compliance yes so which is greater so the static compliance is always greater um, because essentially dynamic compliance doesn't have as much volume of lung involved during breathing so it it will be decreased and the reason that dynamic compliance is lower than static compliance is because you are including things like airways resistance, mm. things that where there's a time component to it. Exactly. With regards to a common question that's often asked, mm. what is hysteresis? Yeah, so this is, I found that this was one of those questions where, you know, myself included, but a lot of trainees will just go around in circles. You just need a really short, sharp definition. So I just call it the variation in compliance value in inspiration, it's a variation in compliance in inspiration versus expiration. And the, it's really this, in more detail, it's a phenomenon of where the dependent variable uh, to alt, alters, sorry, it's really this phenomenon where the dependent variable alters depending on the direction of movement of the independent variable. That's quite interesting. If, you know, if a number is going up, the corresponding number will be, you know, the corresponding value will be less or more depending on which direction it's moving. Uh, and this is really common in a lot of systems, mainly elastic systems. Like if you take the measurement of force and you know, measurement of an elastic band, depending on when you're, you know, where you're applying the force in which direction, it will change the, you know, de- the determinants of that size of that elastic band. I think that's really good to keep things nice and simple because it can get quite complex mm especially in nuns where they mentioned not just hysteresis, but also mm. what's called the time dependence of pulmonary elastic behavior. Have you I heard not. that? No, go on. So a lot of candidates get confused by this concept, which nuns introduces, which talks about how elastic behavior changes over time. Mm-hmm. And, and the big question is, is hysteresis time dependence of pulmonary elastic behavior? Mm-hmm. And look, I think to approach this, it requires a separate podcast in itself. But mm. to put it in simple terms, I agree with you that we just keep things simple, keep it at a hysteresis. 
The short of the answer is that hysteresis is part of time dependence, primary elastic behavior, and that includes things like surfactant activity, mm. stress relaxation, mm. recruitment of alveoli, mm-hmm. but hysteresis does not include airways resistance or the redistribution of gas, mm. which the time dependence of primary elastic behavior in nuns describes also. Oh, you, yeah, it's a little bit complex. A lot of what we, a lot of what we're doing in this exam is probably oversimplifying things, but creating a mental model that makes a bit of sense. Um, but yeah, once you get into a bit more detail, like obviously, you know, Nuns is doing the experiments and you know, okay. really, really getting the detail into this. It's, it, it is far more complicated. Right. And and look, I think you'll only be asked about that question if you're heading towards the prize. Yeah. And <laughs> and for most of us who want to pass this exam, even even getting a merit, knowing this well, mm-hmm. is is where you want to be. Okay? Yeah, I think we notice that this this question seems like a relatively easy uh, question compared to the other questions but in these easy questions you really need more detail so there's quite a number of people who still fail this question you know getting less than a three yep. on this out of five okay so this is where the money is <laughs> so the big question is what are the factors affecting lung compliance how would you go about yeah great that? so the way i wanted to structure this is really do the factors that affect the lung factors that affect the chest wall and then, a fact, then factors that affect dynamic compliance specifically. The lung factors are then divided into volume, elastic, and surfactant issues. So volume is really just body size, disease, the effects of gravity, and age. And just think of how body size, you know, the relative compliance decreases because of size. Elastic factors include things like, you know, emphysema, fibrosis of the lungs, edema, ARDS. And I've just listed those. And then obviously surfactant, can be reduced in patients with in, in, infant respiratory distress syndrome and even in pulmonary embolism as well. So with chest fall compliance, this is probably easier to you know visualize as well. So kyphoscoliosis, ankylosing spondylitis, anything that affects the diaphragm or the chest wall due to obesity, supine positioning, and pregnancy. So that's lung and chest wall, and I've just you know written as much as I can strategically about that. Mm. And imagine I get asked this in the short answer question. I'd have a half a page on each of these points organized that I'd be able to write under. And if I'm saying this in the Viva, I'm flagging, listing these options, just as I'm stating now, lung, chest wall dynamic, lung factors involve volume, elastic, surfactant, chest wall in, in, you know, involves anything that affects the chest wall's uh, you know, resistance or compliance, So, and then mention these terms. So dynamic compliance really is increased airways resistance and the time constants of the lung units itself. So the time constants of the alveoli. Mm. And and just quickly for the audience, what, what are mm. time constants? Yeah, so I mean, a time constant, it's a way of measuring how fast an alveoli will fill. So the definition of each time constant would be uh, the time it would take an exponential function to complete if the initial rate of change had not altered. Now, what's quite interesting, and I get a lot of questions about this from candidates, is the idea of time constants. And mm. they often use it in a very pathological mm. term. And I just want to bring up this idea where when we think about time constants, we think about fast LVLI and slow LVLI. And often what I do uh, as a straw poll for the audience, I often ask, which LVLI do you think is worse, fast or slow LVLI? Oh, interesting, yep. And most candidates would probably say, about 75% would say slow LVLI. Yes. And about 25% would say fast LVLI. Now- It's actually a tricky question because- It's it- a very tricky question. <laughs> and the reason for that is- if I was to ask you, what is the worst kind of alveoli that you can have? Mm-hmm. So it would something it would be an alveoli with low compliance. Yes. 
Yeah. Yes. And also high resistance. Exactly. But time constant is com- is essentially compliance times resistance. Correct. And what happens to each of those could be bad or good. So really yes. what you want is a perfect alveoli. Yeah. Okay. Now, yeah. a perfect alveoli. Yes. So a perfect alveoli has high compliance, mm-hmm. but low resistance. Yes. Now, if you actually think about this, yes. the perfect alveoli yes. has the same time constant yes. as the worst kind of alveoli. That's just blowing my mind, Stan. Yeah. That's really good. Yeah. So that's why, that's why time constants can be a little bit tricky yes. in terms of people think about fast and slow as being you know, the, the best or the worst kind of alveoli. Absolutely not. In fact, right. the worst kind of alveoli actually masquerades itself as your perfect kind of alveoli with the same time constant. I hope everyone's really you know, taken in that point. The time constant is compliance times resistance, but the fact that compliance is relatively a good thing and resistance, airway resistance, is not such a great thing means that, yeah, like you mentioned, the value of a, a really ideal alveoli, let's say, versus a non-ideal alveoli is exactly the same because of this concept. Correct. So, so in mm. fact, fast and slow alveolis actually have components, mm. each have components of something that's desirable, yes. you know? A fast alveoli has low resistance yes. and a slow alveoli has high compliance. And one of the other interesting questions that I, I ask, you know, when I'm teaching this is I, I show them two alveoli with, you know, different time constants and I say, which alveoli will, will be bigger? Mm. Which alveoli will have a greater size? Mm. And again, this is a tricky question, right? Because the fact is that time constants don't affect the ultimate size. It's just compliance. It's just that the slow time constant alveoli achieves the maximum volume at a greater time. Yes. Whereas a fast time constant alveoli will, as long as it's got the same compliance, for a given pressure will achieve exactly the same volume in total. Great. So in the practice of trying to make these um, concepts clinically relevant, mm-hmm. can you tell us like, what does anesthesia do to our compliance? Yeah, well, generally anesthesia will decrease compliance, but it seems that this doesn't matter normally. You just ventilate as normal but it will make a serious difference to awake patients that have a large work of breathing. But we'll talk about that in another podcast about work of breathing. Okay. So how, how is this concept practical for us? Yeah, look, I, I, I think that when I set PEEP, I often open the spirometry loop on the ventilator. And, you know, you just press that button, you see this nice little loop come up and it'll give you values for compliance as well as lots of other values. And I'd argue that maybe optimal PEEP could represent the value of PEEP when the compliance is greatest. So for example, you know, what do you do when you're ventilating a patient with poor compliance, having, say, laparoscopic surgery and the ventilator is alarming? And the surgeons, you know, they need their pressure to be high so they can get the best surgical exposure. But what I can try to do is try to optimize my pressures and optimize my lung compliance as well so I'm getting the maximum volume for the pressure achieved. So this ties into how do we ventilate patients with poor compliance or clinically a restrictive respiratory disease patient? that the limits of these high volumes for these patients, the pressure increases dramatically. And then I'd have to use lower volumes and a higher rate. So imagine I'll be ventilating someone with severe restrictive respiratory disease at maybe 200 mils volume, but 20, 30 rest rate, because otherwise my pressures are just too high to be sustained. Um, But how about the patient with poor dynamic compliance or maybe some obstructive lung disease, so asthma, COPD, bronchitis, the higher volumes will decrease the pressure required to overcome the increased airways resistance. So essentially I might use 600 mils Tyler volume and respirates of six, seven or eight or something like that. And building on from that idea of respiratory rate, I also can change, I also change the um, inspiratory expiratory ratio. Oh yeah, absolutely. And it builds on that idea of airways resistance mm-hmm. because if you have a higher IE ratio, in other words, you give a lot more time 
for inspiration, mm-hmm. what you do is your flow rates actually reduce. And so with that, you actually reduce the resistance that you create. Mm-hmm. And you'll find that your peak and speed pressures actually become less. That's interesting. Most times when we say we have a severe asthmatic, severely bronchospastic, and we want to ventilate them, you'll be told to you know, have an IE ratio where the expiratory time, the E time is quite long. But remember that it's really about the respirate. The absolute respirate has to be low enough so you have enough time Correct. to have the I high enough and the E even longer. You Correct. cannot have everything too narrow. Correct. So hmm. this is, for, th- for that I ratio, I keep it for healthy patients. And you're right, for, for patients with a long expiratory time like asthmatics, mm-hmm. those ones are a little bit trickier. In other words, high volumes, but you need to be able to allow that expiratory time for them to expire to avoid gas trapping and to avoid um, stacking of breaths. So let's say, let's get that patient, patient with very you know, poor compliance, having laparoscopic surgery and the pressures are alarming. How do you ventilate that patient? So my strategies would be to make sure their oxygenation is safe. Yep. And I would allow a level of hypercarbia. Yes. Okay. What I would say is I would probably allow a entitled CO2 mm-hmm. almost to about 50 or 60. Yep. Okay. This is, this is in someone who is a patient with poor respiratory compliance. Yes. So the things that I would do is I would not use PEEP. Yes. I would minimize my PEEP yep. unless I felt that the PEEP was actually improving their compliance curve. But rarely in these patients mm. um, will you actually see sort of PEEP improve. So I, I I'd, use, I'd agree with that, yes. Yeah, minimum, minimum or no PEEP. And I'd have lower lung volumes. Yes. And I would have a higher inspiratory time because yes. often patients with lower respiratory lung compliance, they've got higher resistance. Yes. yes. And so their expiratory time, and they can, they can actually ex- expire very, very quickly. Yes. So what you want to do is just prolong their inspiratory time and minimize the expiratory time. So I, I would probably set it at one to one and a half. Yes. Or, or one to one two. To one. Yeah. Or one, or yeah. Some at the extreme one to one, mm. but often I find one to one and a half is yeah, it's good enough. Yeah. So just to recap, you you know, there's a lot of subtlety in this and different depending on what the compliance issue is, you may want to change this, but lower tidal volumes, higher respirate, no peep, and also being able to just change that IE time so that you just really have a slow inspiratory ramp so you're not getting these sharp pressure spikes. Yep. And then the other thing I would also do is I would use pressure control ventilation. Yes. Get so, the maximum volume for your limiting variable, which is pressure. Correct. Correct. And the reason for that is if you decide to use volume control ventilation, if you actually look at the flow rates, volume control ventilation um, has a flow rate which creates a peak in spiritual pressure and then drives down. Whereas if you use uh, pressure control ventilation, the pressure actually stays at a plateau at where you set it at. For the surgeons, this is probably a part two uh, answer. You would also tell the surgeons to to limit their inspiratory pressures for their for their for their laparoscopic surgery. So often they might run it at fifteen. Yes. You often ask them just to just to lower it down to maybe ten. Yeah, that's right. And deal with that. And it, worst comes to worst, do it open. That's right. Isn't that the thing? You've got to know the whole story of this situation. And the whole story is that you have to make some really big um, compromises with either pressures or CO two or something. And at the very end of this you go open, which is obviously not as great for patient recovery post op. But I'd really love that we've been able to make this really clinically relevant. There's so much about this that is important in our clinical practice. Um, And just to recap, so essentially with this question, we're talking about 
you know, the definition and that's a decent definition to understand with a lot of factors, how you measure it and a bit of information about static versus dynamic compliance. What is hysteresis? And then the big part of this is what are the factors affecting? It's a lung, chest wall, and then finally, what affects dynamic compliance specifically? Hey, so thank you so much for listening. If you like this podcast, please rate it and subscribe and share with anyone who's about to sit this exam or just loves physiology and pharmacology. You can always get it at lahiruandstan at gmail.com for any questions. And yeah, if you want any particular topics covered, please drop us a line and catch you next time. Bye.